process of studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and descended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to our generous underwriters of Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Wednesday, April 5th, we are studying John chapter 19, verses 1 to 16. In today's text, Jesus' trial before Pontius Pilate comes to a climax and a conclusion, and Jesus is sentenced to crucifixion. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Sean Kilgo. Pastor Kilgo serves at Redeemer Lutheran Church in Lawrence, Kansas. Pastor Kilgo, welcome back to Sharper Iron. It's good to be back. As we get started today, Pastor Kilgo, help us with some context. We're starting John chapter 19 today. What should we know about the Gospel of John and any of the context as John has been writing about the Lord's passion leading up to our text today? Yeah, so I mean, the the, the main thing is, like I said, we're in the middle of the passion uh, we've we've been moving around. He's been arrested in the garden. He's been before the high priest. He's been before Caiaphas. You've had the the denials of of Peter and all this, and then um, he's been he's been brought before Pilate. And you've had the beginning yesterday, the beginning of the the trial with Pilate himself, uh, and now continuing that. Uh, essentially through through the end of that trial. Yeah, that's right. We, we've talked about this in a couple of episodes recently, that at least as St. John records this account for us, it seems less that Jesus is on trial and a lot more that all the people who are around Jesus are on trial. Like yesterday, Jesus was asking a lot of questions of Pilate, and it seemed like he was putting him on trial more than Pilate trying Jesus, similarly with the high priest in the previous text. I don't know if that continues into today's text or not as much, but it, I think we have seen throughout that Jesus is the one who is directing events, and I, I think that will continue to be plain in today's text. Oh, yeah. I mean, th- this is a big theme in John, right? I mean, this goes back into the uh, the Good Shepherd discourse, where he says that the, the Good Shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Nobody takes it from him, but he lays it down of his own accord. So you, you get this... Um, uh, that the the way that Jesus ends up being condemned before the the court before the high priest is not because of the the witnesses none of the witnesses can agree um he actually ends up condemning himself right uh so this continues where where Jesus is ultimately in charge of what's going on and you you can kind of sense a uh a calmness or a, a, even maybe a slyness of, of Jesus as you're going through the, the trials and the accounts, the way he answers people and uh, the, the, the sort of questions that he poses. And like we'll, we'll get uh, with, uh, with Pilate, right? When, when Jesus talks to Pilate towards, towards the end of this text where he, uh, he reminds Pilate of where his authority comes from, right? I mean, that, that's not normally a conversation that you're having with a, a guy that is condemned to death. And so there, there's just something very unique 
uh, even in the manner in which the trial unfolds and how Jesus is interacting with all these people. And I think especially in John, because it does have that background in the in the Good Shepherd discourse, that John is is very good at highlighting these things uh, that have that have been discussed before in the gospel. That now he's bringing that to light. That yeah, like Jesus said, he's the one laying down his own life of his own accord. He's in charge. He has the authority to do these things. And he has authority to take his life back up again, as will as the, the gospel will continue. Um, but th- this is not happenstance. This is not Jesus being in the wrong place at the wrong time. None of that sort of stuff. Um, uh, even though that there is the the aspect of Jesus's innocence, um, that that's part of the the atonement that's going on. That's not Jesus just you know. Unfortunately, Jesus just got caught up by the crowd and. You know, he was the, the the guy that just happened to be there at the time. No, Jesus is making sure that this is happening exactly the way he wants it to happen. Yeah, that remains true in today's text. Even though the words in red, the words from Jesus' own lips in this text, do start to become less and less compared to previous chapters, that does remain very true. The The attitude of calmness, I think was the word that you used for Jesus, I think is certainly on display in the Gospel of John and really going back at least, well, through the whole Gospel, but especially very much highlighted through that whole upper room discourse as Jesus there is only a few hours away from his death, the way that he teaches his disciples with that great clarity and calmness, even when he knows what's about to happen to him, has only continued as those things do begin to happen to him in these chapters as he is continuing in his passion, and now as he gets even closer to his crucifixion with our text today. So we are picking up this morning in John chapter 19, starting at the first verse. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you know, do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? 
The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. That's our text for today. That's John 19, verses 1 to 16, 16a. Pastor Kilgo, as the text begins, Pilate takes Jesus, he flogs him, and then there is some cruel mockery of Jesus by the Roman soldiers. In the previous text, Pilate has just told the Jews that he doesn't think Jesus is guilty. He's offered to release Barabbas instead. We're going to hear Pilate again say in this text, he doesn't think Jesus is guilty. So what's going on here in these first couple of verses with the mockery and the cruelty toward Jesus? Yeah, so there, there's a, a couple of things with this. One, uh, to kind of highlight what you were just talking about, if, if, if you count through, and if I counted correctly, uh, there, there's either five or six times that Pilate comes before the Jews and says, this man is not guilty and tries to release him and not crucify him. And that's kind of fascinating because, you know, uh, Pilate, I think in a lot of people's minds, Pilate gets this, this, uh, uh, this bad rap of like, you know, he's just kind of this, this wicked guy. And certainly he's, he's an unbeliever. Um, uh, so that that's not good, but he's like the only person in this narrative that's trying to, uh, actually treat Jesus justly because the, the charges that are being brought up on Jesus are not sticking and, and Pilate can see through that. And he, he recognizes that they're, they're there because they just don't like this guy. They've got a grudge against him. And one of the, one of the marks of the, the, the Roman, uh, justice system is they, they kind of prided themselves in being, uh, a, a just nation as far as punishing criminals and, and whatnot. I mean, they had very harsh punishments for for breaking the law, but they were pretty diligent, it seems, in making sure that the people who were being punished were being were, were actually guilty of, of the crimes that they were accused of. So you, you kind of see that coming out. And it, and it is fascinating how many times Pilate comes out before the, the Jews and says, this man is not guilty. I find no guilt in him tries to release him, and then finally, as we hear at the end of this text, finally just relinquishes and delivers them him over to be to be crucified. Um, so we, we've got that. And then what's going on here is this is part of Pilate trying not to crucify Jesus. So instead of crucifying him, uh, part of the authority that he has as the governor is to dole out, to decide what sort of punishment is going to occur. And one of the options for that is is uh, flagellation. And so this is where they um, they they strip you down, they tie your your hands up to the top of a post, and um, basically you're you're kind of stretched out on on the post by your own weight. And then the the soldiers, they're called lictors. They would come one on each side, and they've got like a a, a whip, kind of cat of nine tails sort of thing with different things tied to it. And they um, they take turns um, uh, whipping across the body. And this is where you get in the, uh, when Paul is is recounting kind of his sufferings, he talks about receiving the 40 lashes minus one. That That's what he's talking about. Um, uh, the, the Romans were, were very good at this. It's kind of fascinating to read through the, 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 the history and what we know about how they went about uh, crucifying and uh, flagellation and this sort of stuff that they, they had figured out that 
Uh, the reason it's 40 minus one is because 39 was the number for most people that you could inflict the greatest amount of pain and suffering while minimizing the possibility of the person dying from it. Um, as soon as you went to 40 or above the likelihood that the person dies from like shock or blood loss or something like that in, increased greatly. And so through, I mean, you've, you kind of can figure out how they figure this out as trial and error. Uh, cause they're doing this all the time. And eventually they figure out, Oh, 39 is kind of the magic number. So this is what they're doing to Jesus. But then you get kind of this extra that the soldiers do because the soldiers, it turned out were, were not kind to people. Um, especially soldiers that were stationed in the realm of Judea, because this is like getting stationed in the backwoods. Um, mm -hmm. That this is not a prime place to get sent as a Roman soldier. You don't want to be around uh, the. You don't want to be around the Jews. You don't want to be in Judea. You want to be in Rome, or one of the the main Roman provinces. Um, this is just out in the sticks. Uh, and same with Pilate. Like the fact that he's. Uh, the governor there means that he's not uh, either well thought of by the people that are in charge or he did something wrong and got got sent here as punishment. Uh, one way or the other, the, these are not nice guys. And so uh, they were kind of known to uh, inflict their own punishments. Uh, and in this case, they're, they're coming in a, in a mocking sort of way. They know that Jesus is being brought up on charges of being a king, as we'll hear later. Uh, and so they, they come up and mock him for that. So they put on a, a royal robe. This, this purple robe would be a robe of royalty and a, a crown. Uh, but the crown is, is thorns. And ironically, and, and this is another thing that I think John does so well, he, he brings up the things that are ironically true. Uh, so you get like, uh, Caiaphas earlier who says it is expedient that one man should die for the sins of the people, right? And and you know that Caiaphas is not thinking like in atonement uh, terms, um, but that's but he inadvertently confesses the the great exchange there, right? Uh, here that the soldiers are uh, accidentally confessing uh, where Jesus's kingship and glory is. And that is in his suffering uh, for his people, as his name says, that he will save his people from their sins. And that's in his death. So, you know, he is a king, but he's not a, a king uh, of this world. As, as he said earlier, his kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is from above. And so uh, his, his kingship looks different. Uh, and so there's this ironic confession of that by the soldiers, even though they're mocking him. And when they say, hail King of the Jews, that is, again, ironically, a proper confession of who Jesus is. Hmm. So, okay, we've got that theme of kingdom, kingship, reigning that we saw in the previous text coming into play in this text again, and that's going to show up multiple times. A couple of things just to, to make sure we've got straight then. As you said, Pilate, by taking all these violent actions, although it certainly hurts Jesus, Pilate is attempting to be merciful to him in the sense that this is one of his ways of trying to not have to put Jesus to death. He's hoping that this very severe punishment 
will be enough to satisfy the chief priests so that they will not want Jesus executed, and this can be the end of it. So that's that's one thing that's going on. We want to understand Pilate's motives there. The other thing is the great irony that's here when it comes to the things they end up doing to Jesus. And I think that the irony is, is just, it's so deep, but we really do want to appreciate it, as you said, because they think that they are doing these things to Jesus to show that he's not a king. But in fact, by actually doing them, they're proving him to be the king that he's come to be. So it's not just, the irony isn't just, hey, they put a crown of thorns on him, they should have put a crown of gold on him. But it's, it's actually the fact that this crown of thorns is the crown that Jesus as king has truly come to wear. This is precisely what he was meant to do as king, is to suffer in this way for our sins, to save us. And as Jesus has been saying all along in John, this then is actually his true glorification happening right here. Right. I mean, you, you had this this prayer earlier, you know, that, Father, the time has come for you to to glorify. Uh, the hour has come, glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. Right? That this is... Um, kind of what really in John kind of presses into the kind of the depths of the passion account. And uh, now you, you see that like his, his glorification is on display and he, and he gets put on display in front of the people um, as, as a King that has come to serve and not be served. He's, he's not there to have everybody kneel down to him. He's there to be raised up um, as, I mean, again, as John, pulls in previously, uh, as Moses lifted up the, the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. Right. And that, that's his glory. Um, that this is, I think one of the most beautiful things about the, the gospel of John is how John is, uh, very intent on pointing us at that, that Jesus's glory is his death because it's in that, in that action that he is fulfilling the promise uh, going all the way back into Genesis to to crush the head of the serpent, uh, but also to crush the, um, to to destroy the offspring of the serpent as, as something I, I think we miss sometimes in the the Genesis three text that there's both the, the destruction of the serpent and the serpent's offspring, the serpent's seed, and the the seed of the serpent is uh, both sin and death, right? So Jesus is taking care of all of these things: the serpent, the devil and also our sin and also our death. And so the uh, our sin is being nailed to the cross. Uh, the, the serpent's head is being crushed under Jesus' heel, and our death is being taken upon Jesus, that he dies so that we would live. And, and so all of this is, is coming to a head, um, and that's his glory. So in verse 4, Pilate comes out again. He brings Jesus out so that they would see there's actually nothing here that makes Jesus guilty. There's no reason to put him to death as they are desiring. Jesus comes out, he's wearing this kingly clothing that is intended as mockery, but does indeed show him to be the king that we need. And Pilate utters the words, behold the man there in 19.5. These words have, have been much discussed in the history of Christianity and often used. I, I've picturing several pieces of Christian art that include this language. This picture has been used often. Talk about the importance of what Pilate says, behold the man. 
yeah, this is <laughs> this is another one of these ironic confessions, right? Um, it's not just behold a man, but it's behold the man. And and this is the the word not for like male, but uh, it's anthropos, uh, human being, or we'd say like humanity. And there, there's this great reality that's sitting there that, you know, Paul brings up in the epistles that that Jesus is the new Adam, right? He, he's the new man. Um, he does what Adam is supposed to do. Uh, he fulfills God's will in, in how he, how he lives and how he speaks. Um, and in so doing redeems all of humanity. Um, and in a sense, like, uh, he is the man then, right? He, he's the epitome of what it means to be, what it means to be human. Um, and this is like Luther talks about this really nice that, uh, Jesus after he is our savior, uh, serves to be also then our example. Uh, so, so what does it mean to be human? What does it mean, uh, to, to live as God's creation? Uh, we can look at Jesus and see what that, what that means. Um, and I didn't mention this previously, but this is actually another kind of, uh, hearkening back into the, into the Genesis account. So you've got behold the man here, which would put us back into the garden, um, which John has already done right just from the outset of his gospel, but also with the crown of thorns, right? So, so when, um, the curse shows up, you have, uh, that what's the, what's the picture of the curse showing up for Adam? It's that the ground has thorns and thistles coming up. Uh, and so now the, the curse of creation is being placed upon the head of Jesus. And then you also have the, the echoing of this or the for, foreshadowing of this with, um, the almost sacrifice of Isaac and you get the ram caught in the thicket, um, caught in the, the, the thorns by its, by its head. Right. So you get kind of all of these hearkening back texts to, uh, to Genesis, which I, I think John is also very intentionally doing for us. He's showing the, the connection, all of this. So the behold, the man is, is the same deal that it's pointing us to the, the new Adam, the new man in Jesus. But there's also this, this nice thing where, um, this, this is at the end of the day, this is the preaching of the church too, right? Uh, th this word behold is, is the word for like, behold's a fancy word for look, right? right. So, uh, look, Jesus, right? And, and yeah. this is, this is what the church preaches, right? Um, this is what G what, uh, St. Paul says, um, I am determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Uh, what, what does that mean for our preaching? That means that when we preach, we are holding our arm out and we're saying, look, there's Jesus and he's for you. Um, and it's the same preaching that John the Baptist does, right? He stretches out his arm and he says, uh, behold, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, which is, uh, a kind of a nice bracketing in John's gospel. At the beginning, you get behold the lamb and here you get behold the man. Um, and it turns out that that's actually the same preaching. Um, yeah. and, and this tells us what we are to, to preach and, and listen for in preaching, uh, even today. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I really appreciate the connection to John the Baptist and his preaching in the first chapter of the book, because there, you know, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is a preaching of the cross ahead of time, as you connected it to, to what happens to Isaac in Genesis chapter 22. And I, I also think we should connect it to the, 
the prayer, the request of those Greeks back in John chapter 12, which you've brought up already in our connection, in our conversation, those Greeks came looking and they said, sir, we wish to see Jesus. We wish to behold Jesus. Well, how can you rightly behold Jesus? This is the answer. And that's, that's the answer Jesus gives there in John chapter 12. He starts talking right there about his crucifixion. And he says, the hour has come at that moment. And now the hour is here. Behold the man. If you wish to see Jesus, as those Greeks did in John 12, then you need to see him right here. This is where he wants you to see him as your savior. Right. Um, and if, I'm, I'm trying to remember, I always kind of forget where the, where the breaks are. Um, uh, you're in Holy Week, right? Um, in John 12. Yes. Yeah. So this yeah. is something that That's... I think is really, really important to remember in the, in the gospels in general, but it, it's like exaggerated in John. Um, you get almost half of John is, uh, set in Holy Week. Uh, like one week of time is, is being dealt with by almost half of the entire gospel. And I think that too is instructive for us on like where, where John and the other evangelists do this too, just not quite to the same extent, where, where they want to direct us. Um, and so in the same way, even the way that the gospels are written and the way John is written, um, it's doing the same thing. Behold the man, behold Jesus, uh, uh, dying for your sins. Um, and, and that's really quite wonderful also to to direct us like what's the what's the most important thing what's what's the the thing that we need to be most concerned about it's uh look looking to jesus and i mean this is hebrews as well right um Mm -hmm. as we as we look to to jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith right um so there's just all this stuff that that's in here and this is what's great about john this is also kind of what's difficult and frustrating about John, especially when you try and start preaching this stuff is there's so there's so much that he packs into such a small area. And it's the entire gospel is like this. I, I love reading John. I really have a hard time preaching from John. Um, the other, I find the other gospels significantly easier to preach from John is always, uh, I'm always kind of pulling my hair out because uh, there, there's too much to deal with, right? Apart from just repeating what the text says, there, there's too much to 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 pull out. And you kind of have to just, like for preaching, just zoom in on like one verse. So like, you That's know, right. if you're preaching this, you just zoom in on like um, Pilate. And this is what happens a lot, right? Um, uh, Pilate uh, goes out and they, and Jesus comes out and he says, behold the man. Uh, and that ends up being the sermon becomes that phrase, right? That's and right. just unpacking yep. all of that. That's right. Yep. Yep. That's that is that's. I suppose it can be a frustrating thing, but it can also be the beautiful thing about preaching from John, is you just pick out that one sentence, "Behold the man," and you trace how he has uh, developed that theme throughout his gospel, and and you preach that. And as you said, it just the text preaches itself. We see Jesus here as the new Adam, the one who's come to bear our sins, to bear the curse for us so that he would be our savior. We're going to keep looking at this text on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Sean Kelgo this morning about John chapter 19. We'll be right back. Please stick around.
What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org, subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, April 5th. We're studying John chapter 19, verses 1 to 16 with Pastor Sean Kilgo. He serves at Redeemer Lutheran Church in Lawrence, Kansas. Pastor Kilgo, prior to the break, we were talking about Pilate's ironic statement, behold the man, quite true that we should behold Jesus. How do we do that? Yeah, so th- this brings up this uh, this idea, Luther uh, has a lot to say about this, and it's a thing called eyes of faith. I'm pretty sure we talked about it before, but essentially what it is is that um, it's through faith that we are actually enabled to see Jesus and see him for who he is. So why is it that the the crowd here can't see Jesus for who he is. And Pilate, even though he understands that he's he's not actually guilty of these crimes, uh, also can't see Jesus for who he is. And that's because of unbelief. Uh, so the only way that we can actually see Jesus properly is by faith. And so this is a, a, a term or a thing that gets called the eyes of faith. Uh, so uh, Luther will talk about how... Um, you know, without faith, we see Jesus and he just looks like a, a carpenter's son or, um, you know, an, an itinerant preacher or something like this. But by faith, we see God himself, the king of the universe, uh, in in this instance, the the the, the new Adam, um, all, all of humanity pulled into a single person, the savior, all these things, right? So, so we want to kind of understand the eyes of faith sitting in here as well. So as the text continues then, Pilate has brought Jesus out. He says, Behold the man, and the chief priests and officers see him, and they cry out for crucifixion. Pilate tries again to stop them, but they keep insisting. Take us into those next several verses, that back and forth between the chief priests and Pilate. Yeah, I mean, this is where you can see like the, the chief priests the officers of the, of the court of the of the Jewish court, uh, they're they are intent. They they have a a goal. Jesus is going to die, and they are uh, they are not going to accept any other uh, con, uh, sentencing than that. And so, uh, you know, they they see him standing there in the in the robe and everything, and they and they're like, nope, that's not good enough. Uh, we we brought him here so that you would kill him. Uh, and Pilate says, no, I'm not going to do that. You do it yourself. And what's funny is that this goes back to a, a previous thing where they say, um, that, that we are, uh, uh, we, we are not able to, uh, to crucify him. Uh, I forget exactly where this is at. Uh, oh, it, they it, it said is in the previous yeah. chapter. It's not lawful. It's not lawful for us. To us. Anyone to death. Yeah. So it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And so like you, you have to hear kind of almost a, a tongue in cheek sort of thing from Pilate. There, yeah. it's like you, you go kill him. Oh, that's right, you can't, right? So you, you are dependent on me to to do your dirty work here, and I'm not going to do it. Um, I don't find any guilt in him. 
And so, uh, uh, they, they, they try and bring up their, their laws again. Um, and I mean, this is like a blasphemy law, right? That, uh, according to the law, um, he is to be killed because he made himself to be the son of God, right? And, it, and that phrase, the son of God is, you know, a, a kind of a synonym for uh, being God. Uh, so they, they understand what Jesus is saying when, when he says, you know, the son of man or, or the son of God, any of these sorts of phrases. And uh, when Pilate hears this, he uh, he's like, oh, well, that, that seems a little bit different. And so he goes in and he just asks Jesus, where are you from? Right. And, you know, you don't, it, which is funny because previously Jesus has told him, my, my kingdom is not of this world. I am a king, as you've said, but it's not of this world. Right. It's, yeah. it's from a, a different world. And we're not talking about like Mars. Right. We're, we're talking about the eternal kingdom. So, um, so Pilate asks him this, where, where are you from? And, Jesus just doesn't answer, which is this, this great thing I love in the, uh, in the, in the passion narratives where, where Jesus is very selective on when he decides to answer things. There's plenty of times where, where he's just like, no, I'm not going to answer that. And in this case, he's already answered. He's already told Pilate, Pilate just wouldn't hear it. Um, so, and, and Jesus is under no obligation to say it again. Um, it, it's not that, that Pilate, uh, didn't understand the words that Jesus was speaking when he said, my kingdom is not of this world. It's that Pilate doesn't have faith in order to actually believe that statement. And, and that, and that's different, right? It's not that the words aren't clear. It's that they are, uh, they're obscured by unbelief. So, uh, he, you know, that this conversation goes in, uh, now with, with Pilate, kind of examining Jesus. And, and like you said at the beginning, it, it turns into uh, Jesus kind of examining and, and preaching to Pilate. Yeah. Well, just to before we leave that question from Pilate behind, where are you from? Even though Jesus doesn't answer it, I think that that question is another one of those places in John's gospel and in even just this conversation where Pilate is asking more than he realizes because where Jesus is from has been something that has come up over and over again in John's gospel, perhaps not always in quite that same language, but think about the conversation with Nicodemus, that he is the one who has you know, descended from heaven, or Jesus constantly talking about him being sent by his father, coming from his father. This question of where Jesus is from is, I think, a bigger question than Pilate realizes as he's asking it here. Yeah, I mean, that, that's exactly right. Pilot, like everything else that's been going on in here, does does not grasp the the gravity of what's what's occurring right in front of his own eyes, right? Um, which I mean, you you can be a little bit sympathetic to that because neither do the apostles, right? Yeah. Um, this is something uh, John gives these great narrative insertions uh, throughout, where like Jesus will say something and he'll say that. The, the disciples didn't understand this until after Jesus was risen from the dead. So, so even, even here, like the, the, the apostles themselves don't understand what, what's going on. Um, which is why like Peter just previously has denied Jesus and he, uh, you know, runs off in, in despair. Right. So he's, I mean, he's not even around anymore at this point. Um, the, the only one apparently 
that continues to be around through this whole thing is John himself. So as this trial continues with the conversation between Jesus and Pilate, now privately again, Jesus gives no answer to Pilate's first question. So Pilate comes right back and he brings up the matter of his authority. He asks, do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus speaks yet once more about this authority. How does Jesus answer Pilate here? Yeah, so Jesus gives this really interesting answer. He says, uh, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Um, and that word, um, it's anothen in, uh, in, in Greek, and it's the exact same word that, that Jesus uses when he's talking to Nicodemus about, he's usually translated born again, uh, but, but it's born from above. And this is helpful in understanding what Jesus was talking to Nicodemus about, that in order to uh, inherit the kingdom of heaven, uh, you have to be born from the Father, from, from above, in the same way that, that here Pilate, the only reason why he can do what he's doing is because the Father, the one from above, has given him that authority. And there's a couple of, I think, important uh, pieces that, that come with this, or, or, or principles, uh, one is that uh, in in our, as, as John has talked about previously, in, in our sin, we are of our father, the devil. We belong to the devil uh, in our sinfulness. And Jesus, in redeeming us, is placing us under a new fathership, which is why we call God Father in the Lord's Prayer. The, the only reason we can do that is because we've been redeemed and placed into a new home with a new father. Um, and this is like the, the parable, the, the strong man uh, with Jesus being the stronger man and binding the devil and all this sort of stuff. The other thing is it's, it's just a reminder that all authority that exists in creation uh, flows from the authority of God himself. Um, God is, whether it looks like it or not, always the one who's in charge. Um, and and this, is, this is a theme that comes up in the in the book of Revelation, which uh, John also writes. Um, and what happens there is you, you get this, this picture where uh, chaos is breaking out in creation. And John's looking around and, and seeing kind of everything going crazy. And then he, he look, he, usually it's he hears and then he looks. And uh, when, when he casts his, his eyes to to heaven to to where god's throne is uh he sees god still seated on the throne still ruling and governing all things the lamb is still there he's still uh the lamb slain uh, uh and so every everything that is kind of always true there, there's always this return back to that in revelation that is that, that god's always the one who has the authority and whether it's Pilate, whether it's the uh, the chief priests, whether it's for us, you know, fathers and mothers in a home, pastors, uh, the, the government, none of that authority belongs to us. It always belongs to the father. And and that's a, a very important piece that that's sitting here that it's easy to, to overlook when, when you're reading this, because uh, again, there's so much going on, but it's also kind of in the middle of a, of a conversation. So if you're not right. kind of slowly reading through you you can miss that but um this is like fourth commandment sort of stuff um right 
uh, that that's going on in here. And then, yeah. and then this, this, uh, almost like a, uh, um, a comfort that, that Jesus is giving to Pilate, uh, where he says, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Um, I mean, he's not saying that Pilate's not sinning by doing this, but it's almost like, you know, don't, don't fret over what you're about to do. Right. Because Jesus knows that he's going to be delivered over to be crucified because that's why he's there. Um, and he's going to make sure that that happens. But, um, it's like, there's this little bit of comfort that he's given to, to Pilate that, you know, don't, uh, don't think that you're the only one guilty in this. In fact, the, the ones who are out there calling for my crucifixion and who brought me here, uh, they are more guilty. Hmm. It's striking to watch Pilate's progression here. You know, earlier when the Jews had accused Jesus of claiming to be the Son of God, Pilate became more afraid at that moment after hearing Jesus speak now about authority and this greater sin belonging to those outside. Pilate again is trying to release Jesus. So, not knowing exactly what he is or isn't understanding, he at least recognizes. This is a situation that he really doesn't want any part of. He needs to try to release Jesus to wash his hands of it, which Matthew tells us he does try to do that. So Pilate is still trying to release him. And the Jews have what I've always thought of as kind of a trump card that they're going to play in verse 12, where they start talking about Caesar. So what's going on here with bringing up Caesar? Yeah. So, I mean, Caesar is, I mean, one of the phrases that you get in, in, uh, in Rome is that, uh, Caesar is Lord. Uh, this is part of the, like the, uh, the Roman persecution of the church, uh, after the, the ascension and everything that they would round up Christians and they'd have them come in. And one of the things that they would have them say is Caesar is Lord, which is why the confession Jesus is Lord is actually a really big deal because it's a confession that Caesar isn't Caesar is not God. Um, that that's what that, that confession is. And so anything that's, that's fighting against uh, the authority of Caesar um, is going to be um, uh, punished pretty severely in Rome, right? So, so Caesar's the, he's not only the, the king, but he's, uh, he's functionally a deity. And so uh, when, when they bring up this, you know, uh, when they start bringing up Caesar, what they're doing is they are they are pressing on the fear button in Pilate because Pilate does not want word to get back to Caesar, which it would, um, that there's this guy here who is challenging Caesar's authority. I mean, you, you think it's bad enough um, that, you know, like when you get Herod, for example, uh, like in, in Matthew's gospel where, where Herod just kind of is losing his mind because he's concerned about challenges to his authority caesar is infinitely worse than than um than herod is and it's he's got much more power than than herod does as well so uh so that's kind of the, the background that, that's going on here they're, they're pressing on that uh, what what is probably the biggest fear button for Pilate, and that is you know caesar having to to send a delegation to take care of this stuff and if that happens then then pilots pilot's going to be up on a cross too Mm. So they they play this political trump card at least for Pilate and I, but I'm going to jump forward just a little bit. We can pick up some of pick up some of the things in the middle, but they will talk about Caesar yet one more time before our text is done. The chief priest answer by the end 
we have no king but Caesar. So we've talked about the political reality behind all this, but what's the theological reality behind what they're saying? Yeah, I mean, this is, um, I mean, this is just an awful statement uh, to make, and and it shows like how deeply their 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 unbelief really has set in. Uh, to say that is to say that that Caesar is their god. Um, whether they realize that that's what they're saying, uh, who knows? I mean, they, they, they seem to be just kind of caught up in this rage against Jesus. Um, and sin does make us do really dumb stuff. Um, and so that that's probably part, at least part of what's going on here to try and give as good of a construction on this as we can. But nonetheless, what they are saying is that um, Caesar is our God, um, not not Jesus, certainly, but also not Yahweh, right? Um, and and so this is uh, it, I, I've I've always wondered with this, you know, all the crowd that's sitting there when the chief priests of all people, the chief priests, uh, they, these are the guys who are in charge of the worship of the one true God in Israel. They're in charge of the temple, and. They say we have no king but Caesar. You have to wonder, like, how many eyebrows get raised in the crowd when they say something like that, um, because that is just uh, that is not what you expect. It, it would be like, um, you know, uh, your pastor getting up on Sunday and saying, uh, uh, we, "We have we have no lord but the government," right? Like everybody would like look at the pastor like he just completely lost his mind. And hopefully if, if that were to ever happen, God forbid, everybody would leave and find a different church um, because you, you've you've ceased to be uh, standing in the faith at that point. And, th- and that's what's happening uh, with the with the chief priests here. And we should note that it is specifically the chief priests that say this is not the entire crowd. Right. So. Um, uh who knows what the rest of the crowd is doing? Um, I mean, they, they certainly aren't there trying to help, at least not that that is recorded, but at least as far as what they're actually confessing, um, we can maybe uh, have a little bit of a, a benefit of the doubt on the, on the rest of the crowd there. But the chief priests are entirely in the wrong, uh, theologically, not, not just like politically, but theologically, they're entirely in the wrong with this confession. Right. And it, it does go to prove the truth of what we've really known all along, but think about those various interactions they've had with Jesus in the gospel where they've claimed to be disciples of Moses and and they really aren't. And we've heard Jesus call them, you know, the children of Satan. He says, that's who your father is in John chapter eight. And this is about as clear of a confession from their own lips that reveals the truth of where their allegiance really lies. It doesn't it certainly doesn't lie with Jesus, but now we know even it doesn't lie with the Lord, with the true God. They are going to pledge allegiance to Caesar here. And as you said, theologically, this is that moment where if you've been following the Pharisees, you should definitely do a double take here and say, wait a second, what? Is that really true? And if it is true, then you know they're on the the wrong side here. So 
that's how, how that works there. Let's pick up a few of the things that happen in the middle of that. Pilate takes some pretty official action. John connects this again to the context of the, the Passover. Now, take us into those interceding verses that we kind of skipped over, verses 13, 14, 15. Yeah, so um, so he's he's placing this um, on the, the preparation for the Passover. Um, you know, it's the, the sixth hour, which is, um, I always forget exactly what, um, like noon. Um, so it's about noon on the, the day of the preparation of the Passover. Uh, so you're, uh, noon on, on, uh, on Friday. Right. Um, so one of the things that we should kind of always note in, um, anytime you get the, these time markers, uh, one, the fact that it's about that actually, that, that, that is, uh, important and, in general, the um, the way that the ancient world engaged with time is not the same way that uh, that we engage with time. So it's not like, uh, hey, they didn't have watches. Yeah, well, they didn't have watches for sure because um, they would only work during the day because that'd have to be like sundials on your wrist or something like that, right? <laughs> um, uh, Do you have one of those? Yeah. You strike me like you might have one. Of I, those. I should have one. I I don't. Yeah. I I always think of the the Weird Al Yankovic uh, uh, music <laughs> video for um, uh, Amish Paradise, where th- there's a scene in there where he's got a, a sundial on his on his wrist, but it's a cloudy day, so <laughs> it, it's not working. Um, Sorry, I distracted. You. No, you're good. It's a squirrel. So the um uh the, the way that they engage with this is is not precise the way that we engage with time and so you know noon ish but i mean there there's quite a bit of flexibility like a couple hours flexibility on right on when that when that's showing up um but it, it is being set in conjunction with the passover right and um, my understanding is what ends up happening is um as, as you kind of work through this um the uh the 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 people there, particularly the priests, end up like missing the Passover meal um, as uh, as this is going on, uh, and which would make them ritualistically unclean, uh, according to the Levitical covenant. Right. So that there's kind of a bit of an irony in there. Um, but yeah, John, John is, is setting that in that uh, in that context, and he's also setting this um uh, kind of a a preview that the, the stone pavement Gabbatha is kind of this preview of Golgotha, which you get um, just in a couple more verses, right? Um, and and John just kind of does this this fun thing where it's uh, place of a skull Aramaic Golgotha, stone pavement Aramaic Gabbatha, right? Um, and so there's kind of this this connection between where the condemnation is actually occurring. And where it's being uh, doled out, where where it's actually happening, right, right. I appreciate what you said about the way that time would have been considered in the ancient world, and just making sure we let them speak to us on their terms, lest we find supposed contradictions between the gospels that really aren't contradictions at all. 
It simply is the fact that they're reckoning time and looking at time in a way that's different than the way that we do today. So I appreciate you bringing that out. We have about two and a half minutes here, Pastor Kilgo. Help us to wrap things up on this text from John chapter 19. It's such a a familiar one. We've had plenty to to look at today. And give us the good news from this part of Jesus' passion. Well, so I want to kind of go back to the to the very end we have no king but caesar and and you kind of alluded to this a little bit um you know that that jesus reminds us that uh out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks right so so out of the abundance of the the um the evil hearts of the chief priests uh they they make this evil confession that they have no king but caesar um but jesus reminds us that the the opposite is also true uh that the the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good um out out of the out of the faith that the lord places into our heart on account of his word uh we speak also uh good um out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks and and the lord has poured into our hearts um through his word through his sacraments an abundance of faith uh, it it overflows to to paraphrase the twenty third psalm, um, so that when we speak, uh, we speak not uh, not as the world speaks. We don't speak as people who belong to the world. We don't speak as people who have their father as the devil. Uh, but we speak as Christians. We speak as those who belong to a different kingdom, and we speak as those who have our Father in heaven. Um, uh, because this is actually what it, what the Lord has placed into our hearts to speak. And we speak especially of Jesus, uh, who is here undergoing all of these trials, um, with his eyes fixed on us. We, we talked earlier about how uh, our eyes are to be fixed on Jesus, but the, the, the great reality is that, that Jesus is doing all this with his, his gaze fixed upon us. He looks at us and our in our humblest state, in our sinfulness, and he makes the decision to descend from his throne, to take on our flesh, uh, to to preach and teach, to suffer, to die, to be raised, to ascend. He he makes that decision um, out of his great love for us, and and that at the end of the day is what we end up uh, confessing. Not that we have no king but Caesar, but we have no king but Jesus. Pastor Sean Kilgo is pastor at Redeemer Lutheran Church in Lawrence, Kansas. He's been helping us today to study John chapter 19, verses 1 to 16. Pastor Kilgo, thanks for being our guest today. It was great to be here. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about the gospel according to St. John, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.